Good morning, and I'll dismiss the uh, children with Miss Tammy back here. She's about if you're following Miss Tammy out. And the rest of you, I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and turn to the book of Titus, chapter 2, as that will be our text this morning. Well... Second chances, new day, new mercies. And of course, our text is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. I know that it's not technically happy New Year right now. New Year's was yesterday, but we're two days into this new year. Aren't you glad? It's not just on New Year's, but every day that we wake up, God's mercies are new every morning. And as I think of a new year, a new start, a new time of opportunity to do things, and as we think of a new year, what do we usually do? We make all sorts of New Year's resolutions, things that we resolute that we're going to do in the new year, Unfortunately, a lot of times, February the 1st, all those new resolutions go away. But according to the Economics YouGov poll that was taken last month, December the 12th through the 14th of 2021, it found this, that nearly one in four Americans said that they are making a New Year's resolution. Now listen. Younger Americans are more likely than older ones to commit to making a resolution in the year 2022. I found that quite interesting. Now, as we talk about New Year's resolutions, a new year, some of the most common resolutions out there that are made each year, exercise more, lose weight, get organized, read more. Learn a new skill or hobby. Save more money by spending less money. Or spend more time with family and friends. Those are the most common ones that you hear. Perhaps you made some this year. Anybody in the room make any New Year's resolutions? If you did, you like to share? Remember, this is a live stream, so anyway. Now, these resolutions are all well and good. I mean, after all, I can use some more exercise, and I need to watch my money more and make sure that my money is going where it should. But do we ever think about making faith resolutions, about strengthening our faith through grace in the coming year? You see, the purpose of theological study, let me stop right there, theological study Theological comes from the word theology. Theo meaning God, ology meaning the study of. We engage in that every time we go to Bible school, anytime we teach VBS or BLAST or we disciple somebody or leading someone to Christ, we're engaging in theological study. Now the goal of theological study is to increase our knowledge of God. And the goal of increasing our knowledge of God is to live lives that are characterized 
by growth and obedience to God's revealed will. That's what the point is. We want to learn more about God and come closer in our relationship with God so we can live lives that are, are obedient to Him. Now, if you look at our text, if you look back in chapter 2, verse 1, you will see that there are practical behavioral exhortations being made. They are connected with the profound theological statements that we'll look at here in just a minute in verses 11 through 15. Look at the first part at verse 11. You see a conjunction there. For the grace of God. Now, grace is an immensely vital doctrine of Christianity, both at the dawn of a new year, 2022, and throughout the year. It is a doctrine with consequences, not just a lofty theological level, but also on the practical, everyday level. So let's read the text together, starting in verse 11. There is a conjunction, For the grace of God has appeared. It's been revealed, bringing salvation to all men or all people, instructing or teaching or disciplining us, To what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires or lusts or passions. And to live sensibly, soberly, self-controlled, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope. The way the New Living Translation puts it. Looking forward with hope to that wonderful day. I love the way they put that. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed or all wickedness, and to purify or cleanse us for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Let's unpack this, shall we? He says first that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's how verse 11 starts. Bear with me a second. God's grace towards us is based solely on his love and our inability to meet God's standards. You realize that, right? The grace of God is only because of his love for you, and none of us can keep his standards. It is a gift that we cannot earn and we do not deserve, and it is foundational to salvation. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I cannot boast in my salvation through Christ. It was a gift given to me, something I did not earn. It's God's Grace. The reason I can stand in the pulpit and preach his word is all because of his grace. The reason I woke up this morning, have breath in my lungs, is all because of God's grace. Now look back at that. God's salvation, characterized by his grace, look what the text says, has appeared. His grace was revealed and personified in Jesus Christ. Now, this appearing is not limited to only his birth, but refers to, refers to his entire life. It includes his death, his resurrection, and exaltation. What did it do? It brought salvation to all men or all people. Now, I want you to realize something here as we continue to unpack this. 
God's grace is not limited to only justification in the restricted legal sense. It continues to operate in the sanctification process of the believer. God's grace is active and powerful. God's grace sustains in time of need. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And he said to me, (coughs) excuse me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. My grace is sufficient. The next time, when you're convicted of sin and you repent from it and you ask forgiveness, the next time the enemy tries to beat you upside the head from something in your past, remember his grace is sufficient for you. It will sustain you in time of need. God's grace produces thanksgiving and glory to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks abound to the glory of God. When you realize God's grace, it produces thanksgiving and you give glory to God, which, by the way, we just did that through song. As we declared, it is well with my soul. It is well, God, because of your grace. And I'm giving thanksgiving to you. And I'm glorifying your name, God. All is well. God's grace affects our conversations. You see this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. We should respond to each other the way God responds to us. When you go ask God for forgiveness, is he vindictive and saying you have to do this and have to do that? Oh, he welcomes you back with open arms. He wants you. He's gentle with you. And we can trust in God's grace to grow us in righteousness with firm confidence in our salvation. That sentence is the whole message in a nutshell. We can trust in God's grace to grow us in righteousness with firm confidence in our salvation. Now look at verse 12. The grace of God is instructing. It's teaching or disciplining us. Now let's just be honest. Being corrected or education in Christian behavior or ethics is seldom a painless process because it involves, it includes, and it consists of the correction of our behavior. May I say as a side note, you should never go to the Word of God to support or defend something that you are doing. No, you don't build a group of ethics up and then run to Scripture to prove that. Your ethics should be influenced by and shaped by what Scripture says, not the other way around. By the way, our nature, man's nature, human nature, naturally opposes God. You understand that. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. 
There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And of course, Paul there is quoting Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3. He's making the point. Man by himself, mankind, humanity by itself, doesn't even look for God, doesn't even seek after God, can't even do one thing good. Anything that we think is good that we do is nothing but filthy rags when compared to the righteousness of God. And God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and really desires. So the point I'm making here is, <coughs> excuse me, God's grace not only to save you, but it teaches you. It grows you. And it teaches us to say no to certain things, ungodliness and really desires. Which is a conscious, willful denial of thoughts, words, and actions that oppose true godliness. And a rejection of desires for things and pleasures that derive from a world that is becoming or is hostile to God. Here's something I came across to kind of drive this point home. The true learning of heaven must begin with the unlearning and laying off of all which stands in the way of the development of the new man. Sanctification. God's way. I hope you already understand this. We have to wrap our mind around it. What the world says stands in direct opposition to God. The values... The ethics, everything the world promotes is in opposition to God. And to grow in our faith, we have to let grace teach us these things and put off anything that will stand in the way of development. <coughs> Excuse me, sanctification. This new creation that we found talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. When you became a Christian, behold, all things have passed away. Everything has become new. You're now a new creature, a new creation. Salvation is only the first step in the process. Then you become more and more like Christ. So it teaches us to say no, but also teaches us, look, God's grace teaches us, look what it says in the text, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Remember what it says, in the present age. Just put that back in your mind for a second. Christian living must be demonstrated in this world that is hostile to God. <coughs> Letting your light shine before men. They will see your light and glorify God who is in heaven. We have to demonstrate our ethics. That's a great way to witness to somebody. The way you handle yourself with family or friends or co-workers, they may come to you and say, why did you do that? Why didn't you do this? Or you have a right to Let me tell you why I did that. Because God's word teaches me to do it this way. And this is where I got a little excited because look what it says. To live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, when you read in the present age, well, that presupposes there's going to be another future age, does it not? Characterized by eternal life that has been inaugurated in the work of Christ during his incarnation. At Christ's second coming, the future age will be fully realized or fully consummated. consummated. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1. Listen to this. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Dear beloved, this is not all there is. There is a future age when this will happen. Look what it says. No death, no pain, no mourning, no crying, no more goodbye. So when you talk about God's grace, it's what he has done, our salvation, what he is doing, teaching us to shape us more and more into Christ, and in the future when he'll come back and take us to live with him forever in a place that is completely eradicated from sin, which I have no idea what that's going to look like, but I'm looking forward to it. And look at verse 13, looking for the blessed hope. Why he's teaching you this. Why he's teaching you to tell you no to certain things and yes to certain things. You do this in the present age and while you're walking this earth, as you're going through the sanctification process, you're looking for the blessed hope. What blessed hope? The blessed hope we just read about in Revelation. Looking forward with hope for that wonderful day. Look at it says in the text, the appearing of our appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Christ Jesus. Oh, can you imagine that day when the trumpet will sound and faith will now become our sight? Everything we read about, everything we've talked about, imagine in our minds, we will see it with our own eyes. And you will see your Savior as He truly is. You'll see His nail scarred hands and His feet and His side. You will see all the glories of heaven. You'll walk on Streets of gold, which who cares about the gold when I'm standing in the presence of the very one who purchased my salvation is the point. Wow. Look how it describes Christ Jesus. Our great God and Savior. It's interesting to note that that word God is being used to describe who Jesus is. Now, some scholars will come out and say, well, the New Testament writers went out of their way not to describe Jesus in this fashion. Oh, really? Look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you will find this. That Jesus had a supernatural birth. He was born of a virgin. He was sinless. He fulfilled Old Testament messianic prophecy, over 200 of them. He demonstrated his authority over nature, disease, demons, and death. He made claim upon the attributes and prerogatives of God, including forgiveness of sins and judging sinners. And, of course, his resurrection from the dead and his heavenly exaltation. Although Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John might not say he was God, but you look at every story, that is there in every gospel. Jesus is part of the Trinity. You realize at Christmas we talk about his birthday. He was a, he's not a created being. He always was and always is, will be. 
he took on human flesh. I like what C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest 20th apologetics there was. He, he has a statement. I'm going to quote it. Bear with me. There is a statement he says that's out there that we should never make. People will say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And C.S. Lewis will say that is one statement we should never say because of this. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. He goes on to say, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a good human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, end of quote. If Jesus was nothing more than a man, if that's our stance, then he can't be a good moral teacher because the things he claimed to be. When he made the statement, I am, that's going back to the Old Testament when Moses asked God, who shall I send sent me? And God says, I am what I am, that great I am. He's referring back to God. So you have to make a choice. We have to make it. Either, he's, either he says who he is or he's not. There's no middle ground here. And I fear in our nation and from a lot of our pulpits, we're compromising, and you cannot do that. Either Jesus is the Savior, God in the flesh, or he's not. A lot of times we do that because it's more palatable. It's more convenient for us to understand. Why do you think Paul called it a mystery, the incarnation? I know it's true. I said this before. I know it's true, but I can't fully comprehend. Here's, here's the everlasting I am in human form. And he's experienced what it's like to be hungry. He's experienced what it's like to be lonely. He's experienced what it's like to be tired. He's experienced when all your friends leave you. That happened to him as well. Do you realize, throughout the whole course of his earthly ministry, he never did one single miracle for himself. It was always for somebody else. Always. Because he came not to be served, but to serve. Look, he says in verse 13, this great God, our Savior, Christ Jesus, who himself, he gave himself for us to redeem us. Gave himself. That's volunteer. His volunteer nature of his death, he, he willingly laid his life down. No one took it from him. He did it on his own accord. And he tells us that the purpose of Jesus' self-sacrifice is twofold, redemption and purification. Redemption is expressed in terms of ransom. Look, it says in the text that he delivered humanity from all lawlessness or all wickedness. So he delivered us both from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And purification, the cleaning by the blood of the new covenant shed by Christ. And just as redemption and cleansing made Israel a treasure possession, by his sacrifice, Christ purchased those for whom he died 
resulting in having a people for his very own possession. The Old Testament, they were constantly sacrificing, shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. But Jesus Christ, once and for all, shed his blood. And it cleanses us. It purifies us. What can wash away my sins? <laughs> you sure about that? It wasn't that strong. But it's right. Once and for all. Now look what he says. For his very own possession, zealous, eager for good deeds, or to do good works, or to do what is good. The profound truth is God in his grace offers salvation to everyone through the voluntary self-sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ. Salvation delivers us from the power and penalty of sin. It cleanses us and reconciles us to God, resulting in us becoming God's treasured possession. And I'm going to admit this to you right now. This is where the text got up and grabbed me by the throat and hit me upside the head. Because it dawned, I knew this, but it dawned on me. This grace that we just talked about, that I'm sure everyone in this room knows about God's grace. You've experienced God's grace. That is the why. Why should we do things 1 through 10? Because of God's grace. Why should we come to church? Not because of the pastor, not because of the Bible school, not because of the programs. It's all because of God's grace. Why should we serve the local body? Why should we do all these things, get passed on the back snow? Because God's grace is sufficient enough for us to be eager, for us to be zealous to do good works. Because even an elementary understanding of the character and nature of God, His work in history on behalf, strongly motivates us to please him by our lives. That's what should be our motivation. Knowing that we can never earn it, we don't deserve it, but we want to live lives pleasing to him because of the grace he has shed upon us in salvation and teaching us and growing us. And then that one day, we read about in Revelation chapter 21, that he will come down. And we'll be with him. Did you catch what the text says? He will wipe every tear from your eye. There will be no more goodbye, no more pain, no more mourning. And as we walk this life and we see all these things around us, we keep one eye down, engage in this world, tell them about this hope that we have, but making sure that we don't live, uh, miss the forest for the trees, that there is a time coming. This blessed hope. Can I put it another way? In light of the cross of Christ and God's grace, how can I sit in my house and do absolutely nothing? How can I do that? How can I tell God, no, I'm not going to preach anymore? In light of what you've done for me, what you are doing for me, and what you promise to do in the future, it does not work. This eager response to a God who's done what he has done for us is infinitely higher than the ought to or better not mentality of a works-based salvation. Did you catch what I just said? When we understand that God's grace, this elementary understanding in the nature and character of God and who he is, to have that eager response back to his love and his grace is infinitely better than this ought to or must not 
mentality of a works-based salvation. We get wrapped up in that. I need to do this. Oh, no, I can't do that. I need this. We have this checklist theology. I went to church today. I gave today. I sang today. God's not interested in that. He's interested in your heart. He's interested in your response to his grace. That's what Christmas is all about. God's grace coming straight to us in a most tangible way. The person and the work of Christ Jesus, our Messiah and our Savior. So we've walked through this text this morning, and let me tell you, this is not all comprehensive. There's more to be said. We have clearly seen in this text that we can trust in God's grace to grow us in righteousness. See, the highest and purest motivation for Christian behavior is not on base of what you can do for God or what I can do for God, but rather upon what God has done for us and yet will do. Can I just be very transparent? What in the world am I so afraid of? If I know God has my future in his hands and I know where all this is going, why am I so afraid of and I sit back and say nothing when I should be shouting from the rooftops? Look at some of the contemporary culture. I may get in trouble for this, but here it goes. There's an artist named Adele. Now, listen to some of her stuff. Go back. I'm not saying everything she does is perfect. So I'm not, I want you go find that. Go on Amazon, Music, Arabia. I want you to look at the lyrics. There's a song about her drinking wine, but look at the lyrics. When Luke says, I am tired of trying to impress people that I don't even know. And you look at the lyrics, I can't but think this is somebody crying out, what is the answer? Look at it. Culture is crying out, what is the answer? We have the answer. His name is Christ Jesus. Only as we grasp the full theological significance of God's grace can we eagerly do what is pleasing to him. So if we can trust in God's grace to grow us in righteousness, we can have firm confidence or assurance of our salvation. God's grace is active and it's powerful. Saves us, grows us, shapes us. And to say it another way, you can say it the other way. Since we can trust in God's grace, we can have firm confidence in our assurance of our salvation. And knowing that we have firm confidence or assurance in our salvation we know that it will grow us in righteousness. So I ask you this morning to allow the Holy Spirit to transform your heart and your life as we go into this new year. We're going to have a celebration next Sunday. Rashana's putting a video together of everything that's happened. We've had some great milestones happen in this church. We've seen people come to faith in Christ. We've had baptism. Financially, God continues to pour out his grace. Do you realize not only did we go over Lottie Moon, but one Sunday last year, the offering was over $12,000? That's not because of me, Jilly Bull. That's God's grace being poured out upon us, showing us you keep doing what you're doing. You come after my kingdom. What does it say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. She's going to have a celebration. We're going to look back and rejoice. But I want to, for lack of a better word, warn you. 
there's challenges ahead of us. Lots of challenges. But nothing's impossible with God. It's so vitally important that we continue to grow in our faith. Allow that grace to grow us individually to God, but also to each other. So you're not transformed by your ability to read Scripture. You're not transformed by how well you listen to it preached or how fervently you pray. You are transformed by the Spirit convicting you about the grace of God. All that is accomplished and all that will do. You don't need me up here telling what you should do and what you should not do. The grace of God does that all by itself. That alone should be our motivation. Not what programs we're doing or what trip we're going on or what music's being played or what color the carpet is or all this stuff that church is getting just completely off track. And I found myself this week going, God, where do we get it so wrong that we missed it? It's all about your grace. Max Locato, perhaps you've heard of him as a Christian writer, had an interview with the Christian Bible Studies, and this is what he said about grace, quote, grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. When grace happens, we receive not a compliment from God, but a new heart, end of quote. Where are you at this morning? Have you experienced the grace of God in your life through salvation? Sorry about that. Have you given your life to Christ? Have you experienced that grace and given a new heart? Felt the weight of your sin just be lifted up? That sense of this stuff. You want to go jump up and down? I finally found the answer. Or maybe you've done that, but you've lost your way. You got tied up doing this or not doing that. You missed the whole point. The whole point is God's grace. Don't forget, dearly beloved, we can walk out of here with hope. And I'm not talking about wishy-washy hope, like I hope it gets warm tomorrow. I'm talking about a solid firmness not only are we saved from our sins and the penalty of sin, which is death, but he's going to grow us, and he's coming back. This is not all there is. And we should be active. We should be active in speaking our voices out there. But remember, this is not all there is. There is a day coming, and coming soon, when he will come back. And Scripture is very clear. Every knee will bow on that day. Doesn't, doesn't matter who they are. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everybody will knee. The question is, are you really going to take a knee now and be humble and seek him and do it now? Or are you going to wait till it's everlasting too late? It's up to you. Who do you say Jesus is? And how we answer that question 
will be exactly how we live out this new year. But please, if anything going on in your heart with God right now, you come up here and pray. I'll pray with you. Perhaps you need to go across the room and pray with somebody. If you're at home, maybe you need to pray as a family or call somebody. Please do that. Time is running short. And time, the, the, the times we're living in is getting so extreme. How much more wake-up alarms do we need? God is trying to get our attention. Hey, it's getting short. Watch out. And I'm telling you, as much as I see challenges in 2022, what a great time in which we live to speak truth into people's lives. People are hungry for it. They won't come out and tell you that, but they are. But I exhort you, I plead with you, I implore you to do business with God right here and right now. You will not find another group of people that are so compassionate. And they'll come, they'll pray with you. They'll walk with you. Don't follow me. Come alongside of me and let's follow Christ together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your grace. For God, Father, for forgive me for getting that one simple truth. I don't need applause. I don't need any rewards. Your grace is sufficient. Father, you saved me. You've called me. And your grace also sustains me, teaches me, guides me. Father, I pray for everyone in this room that they'll have that firm assurance, that firm confidence of their salvation. And they can trust that same grace that saved them will grow them in righteousness. Father, I pray that none of us have any doubts that this will be the day and the hour that we come to you. And Father, we love you. Your grace and your blessings have been lavishly poured upon us. So many things you provided for us. But the most important, above everything else, your love and your grace lavishly poured upon us that we could be called your son or your daughter. May we never get over that amazing grace that you have demonstrated to us. We pray for all this in your son's name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?